Welcome everybody to another edition of O2 and You. I know it's your favorite time of the week when we do our riveting live political interviews here in the state of Utah, talking a little bit about environmental policy and uh, about uh, campaigns. I'm very excited about uh, our two guests today. I think they're both uh, doing their best to help me feel old. Um, and we're gonna kick it off with Megan Miller, who's joining me from House District 54. Uh, Megan, welcome to O2 and You with your host, David Garbett. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, well, let's just jump in. I um, We were talking to people before we started this broadcast about your debate last night. Was this the first debate of the campaign? This is the first debate of this campaign. And I'm actually kind of hopeful that we get one, maybe maybe two more. Cool. How'd it go? How was the Zoom debate? <laughs> uh, I mean, the format was a little little funky, but on the one hand, like, you know, doing it from Zoom in a comfortable place in your house puts you, I think, in in a different headspace versus in an auditorium having to face people. Um, no applause or, or audience reaction was a little off-putting. Uh, but at the same time, it was also very easy to maintain a very level level head and headspace. So on one hand, it's great. On another hand, you know, it's it's COVID and thank goodness for technology. Otherwise, like what would we even do to have an opportunity to engage, engage and inform voters about the differences between myself and my opponent? Sure. Yeah. Um, it, it is fun. Remember, it's fun being live because you can see those people that get really excited when you say something. But then you also don't have to deal with all the people shaking their head and just looking so disappointed when you can tell you say something that they don't like. Um, yeah. Tell us about your decision to run. This is your second time doing it. You got very close. Uh, in fact, you had the closest race of anybody that, that lost in the legislature two years ago. Um, I think it's how do you dust it. yourself off after that and do it again? Uh, it, it took some coaxing and like after the last, or after 2018, it felt really good. I mean, we turned out a lot of voters. People obviously felt that they had a choice. So on the one hand, I felt very, very proud of that. On another, I was a little, a little bummed, but you know, also first time candidate, no political background. And so not entirely unexpected to not win. Um, actually went and took a new job shortly after the results of the election. I uh, left my job at People's Health Clinic and went to Eats and kind of really toyed with the idea of like, well, I don't think I'm going to run for like an entire summer. I actually went as far as like had lunch with like lunch and coffee with a few people trying to convince them to run. Um, <laughs> and then kind of had an epiphany around October of last year that I really could do both jobs and that, you know, I really wanted to to try and we'd been starting to hear rumors that Tim wasn't going to run and I don't know I just, I'd had enough time away from the loss in 2018 where it wasn't fresh and I was like no you really need to try it again um I know Suzanne Harrison was uh representative Harrison was really like in my corner I'm like you have to run again you have to run again like look what happened to my race and I think that was also really inspiring and I've just felt a lot of support like I think people really wanted to see this happen so I kind of feel like, you know, I owe it to the community to see if we can do it this time. Um, so as far as actually why I ran, I mean, that's kind of my motivation for giving it a second go round. But as far as why I ran, I grew up here in Utah and, you know, went away for a little while, came back 
to raise my family. And I just have been, as an adult, unimpressed with the level of representation, um, unimpressed with kind of the super majority in our state. And I'm aware that, you know, on, on one hand, people vote, people vote the super majority and on another, I think there's been a lot of voter suppression in the form of gerrymandering and in the form of, you know, legislators just don't listen and there's not enough people truly engaged to take them on for, you know, those seats to turn over. And so I just really was like, there needs to be more accountability. And instead of waiting for somebody who is accountable, you know, I can go in and do it. I have a decade of healthcare experience. Like I'm a mom, I have all of these skills and all of this education and knowledge behind me. Like, why can't I go in there and be a legislator? And so kind of just went with like, don't get mad, get in. Yeah, you know, I, I love hearing that because uh, this is part of the message we try and talk about with people that there's nothing really that unique about these representatives that you see that are up on the Capitol now. And we want people to feel empowered to have that same conversation that you have, especially people who's, um, you know, our legislature, the demographics of our legislature don't look like the state. And we need to do a better job of that to have representation for the state. We've got to look more like the state and, you know, saying, hey, I know that I, why not step out? Why not do this? And I think that's really um, kind of the critical first step. And then <laughs> I think some of that, you talked about your experience running the first time and um, I don't think it's the best thing to tell a first time candidate, hey, this is probably <laughs> gonna take a few tries, but you, you, you ease that, you ease yourself into that cold water later on. Yeah. Often it does, but Suzanne Harrison is a great example that you just pointed out of somebody who stuck with it. And, you know, I hope we're talking about you in that case here um, in a month and a half. Uh, I, I certainly hope up. so. So good on you for doing it. If you could wave a magic wand and um, tackle any two problems in this state, which two would you, which two would you do? Oh, that is such a loaded question. Um, I think one of the big ones is air quality. Uh, the way the Salt Lake Valley sits just geographically puts the valley itself at an imposition, at a disadvantage, just in the fact that it's a bowl and with any kind of pressure system and, you know, air temperature, it can create that inversion. And Heber Valley is actually the same way. So anywhere that you have, you know, mountainous regions with valleys where people have settled, I think we really do need to focus on air, the particulates that we breathe in. I mean, uh, our lungs, like our lungs are our filters in what, uh, you know, what filter things out. But unlike, you know, an air filter in your car, in your house, you don't get to change your lungs. So I think we need to start start thinking about like what exactly we're exposing our bodies to. Um, and I mean, another one's food. It's very, very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, I don't exactly know how to go about tackling the problem, but 80% of Utah's agriculture is alfalfa or no, 80% of what we grow in Utah is, no, 80% of water. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact statistics, but I know we're a huge alfalfa producer and alfalfa is made for animals, cows specifically. And as we're looking at, you know, the rapid growth in Utah and we're looking at sustainability of communities and just, you know, we're talking about air, like everything is so interconnected and so multifaceted that I think even looking down at like where our food comes from, is something that I really want to start having more conversations about. 
This ties in to what you're doing now. Can you tell us a little bit about EATS? Yeah, so EATS, uh, our legal name is EATS Park City, though I tend to just refer to it as EATS. It stands for Eat Awesome Things. And uh, it actually started as Eat Awesome Things at School. And we started focusing on how could we uh, be a community advocacy group that would work with the school district. And we started with Park City District just because of the location of the community members that started EATS, um, Ann Bloomquist and Susan O'Dell. And, you know, as affluent of an area as Park City is, 25% of our school, our students are on free and reduced lunch, which doesn't sound like much, but I mean, if you think about it, those are the most vulnerable children in our community. And they're relying on the school district for probably the bulk of their calories throughout the day, because a lot of them have breakfast as well. And so when you're giving kids, you know, high carbohydrate, heavily processed sodium and chemical laden food, and then you're asking them to perform at the same level as their peers that are getting, you know, fresh organic food and a balanced diet, like you're already stacking the deck against kids. Um, and kids are at such a critical stage developmentally that nutrients play a huge, huge role. So, um, you know, we kind of gathered the community together and asked what's up with school food and had a community campaign called Hungry for Healthy, where we really lobbied the school district to remove some of the what we call Sinister 7 from their food and start doing scratch cooked meals, which actually has a really positive return on investment to the community. It actually saves the district a lot of money. It gives you a lot more control over your menus. And so then the district came along with us. They went on that journey. And so then we started listening to feedback from the community about like, well, why aren't there cooking classes for adults? Uh, you know, are there different like nutrition and education opportunities? And we have um, garden classes and we have a garden coordinator because, you know, connecting people to where their food comes from is so essential so that it doesn't, um, you know, I use the example of he's six now and he's finally, he's finally figured it out. But at one point, uh, my older son was probably four and I very distinctly remember, I was like, oh, you know, bacon comes from pigs. And he looked at me he's like, no, bacon comes from a store. <laughs> and I kind of had that moment where I was like, oh buddy, we got some work to do <laughs> because, you know, we're, we're so blessed to be able to go to the store and get a package of bacon instead of having to go out and, you know, slaughter the pig and butcher it and then go through the curing process and all that. But I mean, that's how some countries do it. Like they don't have a grocery store to go to. And so the connectivity to your food is so essential. And then uh, one of the biggest components that we've gotten into on the more recent side in the past two years is food security. Um, you know, when children don't know where their next meal is coming from, it creates a lot of anxiety when they're not getting enough food to eat, they're not getting enough nutrients. It creates developmental issues that will follow them for the rest of their lives, once again, further setting them up for a disadvantage to their food secure peers. So all things food are very near and dear to my heart. Do you think there are any major changes the state could implement to, uh, to change the uh, change school lunch diets, change school breakfast, change any of the school meals? Uh, how could they be, how could they help? Um, I mean, the state school board themselves could set standards. Um, I think as far as the state school board, they're not gonna go above and beyond what the federal government and the USDA have set. The USDA has set their guidelines, um, which, so I think honestly, if you're really looking for like how to have some changes, you need to go infiltrate the USDA and they actually redo the school lunch standards roughly about every five years. It was in the Obama administration in 2015 where they made some really big sweeping changes to the school lunch program, really encouraging fruits and veggies again. Um, you know, at one point, I want to say it was, <clears throat> pardon me, I want to say it was maybe during the Reagan administration. I didn't write this down when I 
listened to this webinar, um, ketchup was considered a vegetable. So there, there was a lot of progress and then there was a lot of back, you know, backslide. And now we're making progress again. Um, in 20, so yeah, in 2015, when they made sweeping changes to so 2020 this year, but there was, um, there wasn't a lot that the current uh, federal administration has done around school and they haven't really backslid much, but they haven't really pushed forward. Um, so honestly, it's the USDA because the states, well, there's a couple of states and a couple of districts that are willing to go heavy hitters and go above and beyond the USDA. But I think for a lot of places, they don't get additional funding. And so one of the things that I think the state could do is look at appropriative funding for districts that are doing outside the box creative things. Um, actually, I know that there was a coalition that brought a bill to, I think it was Farm to Table, that brought a bill to the legislature in 2020 uh, for a small, I think it was like $250,000 pilot program for school districts to be reimbursed if they're purchasing local product, local product being defined as product grown or produced by a Utah farmer. Um, I want to say that passed, but then with COVID and the budget reorganizations, they may have messed with that funding. So I haven't dug too terribly deeply in there, but I would say, honestly, when it comes to, when it comes to issues like food, you really have to follow the money. So if the state's willing to pony up money because nutrition and education go so hand in hand, um, I think there could be a lot of potential for school districts to say, yeah, this is something that's important to us, but until the money's on the table for them to be able to make some of these sweeping changes with, it's gonna be a lot harder to move to move the needle. And you know, a big part of it comes from like, it's expensive to create the new system, but once the system is created, once you have the staff trained, there's a lot of positivity and a lot of return on investment that can come from that. But to go from a heat and serve kitchen to a scratch cook kitchen, scratch cooked kitchen, that is a tongue twister. Um, you know, that does require some incredible investment. And I think there's a lot of, you know, back and forth on is it more worthwhile to put the money into technology for students or is it more worthwhile to put money into the kitchens that the students will never see, but that provide the food. So. It's, it's really multifaceted and I wish I could say that, you know, it'd be one sweeping change that would have all these effects, but it really is more nitty gritty conversations and it's such a deep topic as so many of them are that I don't do it justice without addressing the fact that it's multifaceted and very nuanced to the districts. Well, <laughs> love to tell you more stories about starting my scholastic career under the Reagan administration, eating crinkle cut fries and chicken fried steak, but Let's talk a little bit about your- no, Don't hate on the crinkle cut fries. <laughs> they were just always soggy. Always yeah. soggy. I, I like soggy fries. <laughs> uh, you have a very interesting district. You've got one of the most um, liberal parts of the state in Park City. And then you have uh, Wasatch County, Heber, that tend to reflect the more the traditional rural exurban parts of um, of the state. How do you balance um, running in a district like that? It is, it is a, I don't wanna say challenge. It is an opportunity for creativity. Um, a friend of mine always says that um, or extremism is not linear, it's a circle. So if you go so far to one side, you actually kind of cross into the other. Um, so I think one of the things is um, I mentioned in my debate last night that I have a minor in mediation for my graduate degree. And so one of the big things I think is listening to people and he genuinely hearing what they're frustrated about. When Wasatch County is talking 
about you know their value system it's not that they're attacking liberal values it's that there's so much growth that nobody was really expecting or prepared for that they feel very encroached on and i mean there's a lot changing and change can be really scary so i think you have to listen for what people repeatedly say and i mean i know they're like park city we don't want to be like park city but if you start actually like really dialing down, okay, what don't you like about Park City? We don't like all the tourism. You know, we don't like all the growth. Okay. Well, a lot of the growth that's, you know, that's happening in Wasatch County was grandfathered in by, you know, previous county councils. Um, there's going to be a huge project going in the North Fields and everyone's like, protect the North Fields. And like, well, all that land is already bought and, you know, there's development agreements like in writing, ready to go on stuff as soon as developers come, come in and, you know, want to do the project. So a big part of it is listening so that people feel hurt. They feel like someone is paying attention to what's important to them. And then I think being bold enough to say like, this is not a legislative issue. Um, you know, it'd be inappropriate for me to try to legislate this, but let me see if I can start a conversation with city council for you. Let me see if I can start a conversation with county council or the school board and actually following up on that and saying like, hey, a constituent reached out to me. Do you mind if I connect you? Um, or, you know, in some cases, maybe just being like, hey, so-and-so is a constituent. They're really interested in this issue. I'd like to connect the two of you because I think this is, this could have a lot of meaning. And just not being afraid to say like, hey, can I help facilitate conversations? Can I get this project moving? And I think that's one of the things that our representation hasn't really done. Like they haven't been afraid to say like, oh, that's not it. That's not my issue. But it's that next step of like, hey, this isn't my issue, but let me put you in touch with somebody that maybe can do something about this. And I think also just having the the lens constantly that, you know, intention really needs to be like, don't don't question people's motives. It's not that people are inherently bad. It's that like something is very triggering and like fiery for them. Um, and it's, it's that way with like both Park City and, and Wasatch County. Um, sorry, I know I'm rambling, but I have a great story about like talking to one of my neighbors during, you know, about COVID. And he and I have kind of differing differing degrees and at one point I just made the mention that you know one of the concerns with COVID is that when you end up in the hospital it's usually very very resource heavy and he kind of looked at that and he nodded and he was like okay you know what I could he had never thought about it from that perspective but I think he really valued the fact that like instead of jumping down his throat we just had a conversation so I think the more I can bring people to the table to just have those civilized conversations yes the district is very different like demographic wise, population wise and view wise. But within those differences, there's a lot of middle ground. I think a lot of people are willing to come to the middle ground if you give them the invitation. That was a really long answer. No, it's interesting. I, I'm, I would be fascinated to see how it is on the campaign trail as you help people to, no, I mean, I don't think a lot of people in your shoes are willing to just be honest and you know help someone understand that Part of the thing that they're complaining about is, is somewhat out of your purview because you know we do have different um, different realms of responsibility for different uh, levels of government and yet still help them see I'm interested I'm here to help you and I want to connect you with those people but I also don't want to make false promises to you and tell you that this position will allow me to solve it other than to be here to be a listener and to help connect you to the people that, that do. That's interesting. I, I think it's just one of the things that sets me apart. And in 2018, 
I mean, one of the things that I took away the most is authenticity. People know when you're BSing them. And, you know, some people like it, but I think more often than not, people appreciate authenticity. So, I mean, I have a running joke that, like, normally I really like to wear red lipstick um, in COVID times because it gets all over my mask. I don't anymore. But, you know, a couple of people are like, that's just really bold. And I'm like, but it's who I am. Like, I love my dark eye makeup. I love, like, you know, bright red lipstick. Um, It's my thing. And so I think there's a lot to be said for just being true to you. And I think people kind of see that and then, you know, whether or not they admit it, like, I think there's a little bit of respect there for like, okay, she's going to do her, but if she's going to do her when she's trying to sell herself to me, I think she's going to do her when she's representing me. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, air quality in uh, Heber specifically. They, you know, you mentioned they, they also get inversions. Um, so how often to, yeah. voters about air quality and about the problems that they face in, in winter? I don't think we're really there yet. If people are dialed in and paying attention, I think they are. But for the most part, I don't think people have really had had a chance to like sit and look out and be like, oh, well, this is not good because it's still kind of a newer problem to mm-hmm. Wasatch County. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's starting to actually become a problem with Park City. Uh, Main Street kind of has a little bit of a haze starting to surround it. Um, and so I think it's people that have been here that have been in the Valley for a while are starting to pay attention. Um, but I also think there's a degree of like people want to kind of, they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to admit that they're partially to blame. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of that just like personal responsibility where like, oh, it's, it's not the fact that we drive. It's not the fact that, you know, the county has grown and that we have a private airport back here that, you know, we're bringing more and more planes in on a regular basis. Um, because it's, it's hard to sit there and be like, yeah, my lifestyle and the way I live is part of the problem. Like, that's not an easy thing for anybody to admit. It takes a lot of takes a lot of practice to sit there and be like, well, I need to make some sweeping changes and I need to encourage, you know, the businesses that I patronize to make some sweeping changes and that I have to drive with my dollar. Um, So I think when people talk about it, I bring it up. Um, But I think a a more sweeping focus is just on environmental stewardship and because it's a big value with Wasatch, especially, you know, we want our kids to grow up in the valley that they were raised in. So unless we really start taking care of our environment, that may not be an option for our kids. And so it's kind of, you got to hit them a little bit more in the heartstrings about what's going to happen to my children, um, which then I think slowly opens the door for, you know, talking about particulates in the air. But unfortunately it hasn't become a big of enough issue for it to really resonate with the bulk of the county. It's, it's sad, but true. Do people raise that with you in Summit County? Yes, people that are paying attention on means or to Main Street and just the growth and that are dialed into the fact that cars are a big part of pollution do mention that air quality is important and everyone brings up Salt Lake, which I think leads back to the what are you willing to change? How are you willing to drive with your dollar to improve air quality? Um, but the conversations in Summit County around environmental stewardship and you know air quality and what can we do to protect our future are a lot more forward thinking and a lot more open. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts and reactions to listening to you talk about that. But one thought I've, I've shared with legislators who have asked me about air quality and why we're not making progress is that uh, 
you know, I think fundamentally, uh, to deep down at the end of the day, too many members of our legislature do not think that it is an appropriate area for the government to actually do anything about. And, I, you know, personally, I can't square that, that thinking that we only, we can only ask people voluntarily to address air quality, and yet we have speed limits. We, um, you know, we require people to pay taxes. We understand that sometimes we have these large collective action problems that mm -hmm. are an appropriate role for the government to be involved in. And, um, you know, without having that, I think we get kind of my poster child for, for some of the bad thinking in the legislature was this past session. Um, your, your retiring representative voted for a bill that subsidized some of our, our two dirtiest refineries. The two refineries have dragged their feet and refused to upgrade to cleaner fuels. And I think that comes down to them seeing pollution as a right rather than uh, you know, something that clean air is actually the right and, and we should feel comfortable telling companies, no, you can't put out a product, a subpar product. Yeah. Uh, aside from air quality, I mean, we've talked a bit about, about growth and some of the issues that that provides, or sorry, some of the, the uh, challenges that provides for environmental quality in your district. Do you think, do you have ideas about what you'd like to see the legislature do to address some of the things you're hearing from people in your district on growth? Yeah, I mean, so growth is both a double-edged, it's a double-edged sword. Um, you know, we have large families, we're living longer, and so some of the growth is to house our grown children. Some of it, some of it is to accommodate, you know, incoming population, uh, people who are moving to Wasatch County because they don't want to live in Park City anymore, people who are moving to Wasatch County because they want to, they like the Wasatch County kind of like locale better than, you know, Utah County. And because of Provo Canyon, they can still commit or commute to their job in Provo. Um, but ultimately, I mean, as far as density and development, that's very much a city and county issue. So I think what I would like to really do is to say, you know, to cities and counties, like, how, how can you feel supported at the legislature? Is it tidying up land use codes so that when you say no, the state statute holds and then developers can't go, you know, around? I think that's one of the big ones is hold the line and say to developers, you know, you are, you are beholden to the cities and counties that you were trying to develop in. What they say goes and you need to listen to them. Um, but I also think, you know, um, property tax is still very much kind of a county county level issue, but I have heard from people that are like, you know, as, as Wasatch County is growing and their, their property value is changing, you know, people are like, I can't afford my home anymore because they're on fixed incomes if they're older. And I think it, it opens the door for creative thinking, like how can we work together? Um, you know, are there city and county ideas that could be put into tax referendum? Um, and once again, what I mentioned in my debate last night was a much more open door process, a ton more town halls and get feedback from people and actually like ask them for their insight. And that comes back to, I mean, um, you said you had a lot of thoughts and feelings about clean air, which really just kind of sparked a, an idea. It's kind of like when you're trying to get kids to eat veggies, so much stuff in my life comes back to food. When you're trying to come to get kids to eat veggies, they do it if they think it's their idea. So when it comes to, you know, ideas for clean air, 
you know, have presentations, like have draft language ready in a bill, but like do prep work with communities beforehand and make them think that it's their idea to support this bill, even though the bill's already written and kind of ready to go, but make them think it's their idea. And then there's this wave of community support. And then all of a sudden the legislature can't be like, oh, it's not our place because communities are like, why aren't you doing this? Did you know that there's this bill that could be done? Um, you know, kind of like turning it on its head and making them think it's their idea. It's kind of similar with development bring it to the community level and it does the process takes a lot longer when you do it that bit when you do it that way but the community consensus creates a lot more internal support and honestly no one is going to be a more effective uh, advocate for change than a neighbor to a neighbor um you know if my neighbors come up to me and they're like oh we've got this project like they're my neighbors i'm probably like i'm gonna listen to them like i'm gonna listen to my friends my friends are like hey i need you to sign this petition you know I have signed petitions before for things and I'm like, I don't actually know what this is, but my best friend has asked me to put my name on it. Okay. Okay. Sure. And so I think there's a lot to be said for community initiatives and community initiatives with, you know, a legislature ready to act once the community has been educated and is on board. I think there's a lot of space that, and that hasn't been leveraged. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that like the legislature has tried to involve the community. Um, you know, I think organizations like O2, I know you guys are newer, but like HEAL, they've tried, but the legislature seems to be kind of squashy on it. And so even if you get the community riled up and like ready to go on something, the legislature kind of just pats you on the head. Oh, there, there, you know. So I think it's what you need one to do the other. You need the community to be really rallied around a solution. And you need the legislature ready to be like, okay, you know, these are really great ideas. This is community thought. There's consensus. We can move ahead with this. I think there's just, it, that takes some ego. You have to put your ego aside to say like, this is what's in the best interest of the community. And it's a collaborative effort because when it's collaborative effort, no one person really gets like the kudos of like, you know, it was representative Miller. She did that. Um, but I mean, I'm willing to put that aside if it's what's in the best interest of the community. And if it's what's in the best interest of the community and they're on board, that's even better. I am probably, I mean, I already know this about myself. I'm, I'm on the utopian side, but I also think that, you know, what you expect of people, they give back to you. So if you expect the best, you can get the best. You just have to expect it. <laughs> so hold them to that expectation. <laughs> Last question for you. We've got a minute left here. Um, COVID has not made your job easier campaigning. No. How are you, how are you managing? How are you getting the word out? How are you talking to voters? I mean, I'm still doing a lot of the old school, like knocking on doors. Um, you know, in 2018, I would have probably handed somebody something this year. We have door hangers. So I'm putting the door hanger on, ringing the doorbell and taking a really, really big step back. Um, if I'm feeling pretty safe in an area, I won't wear a mask. Uh, if I'm feeling like, eh, maybe a little sketchy, like even if I'm outside, I'll wear my mask. Um, you know, when people open the door, like, we kind of have to, like, raise our voices a little bit because there's some space, whereas, you know, in 2018, it was a little bit closer. But I'm still knocking on doors and talking with voters because I think that that's still very personal. Um, we're doing social media, obviously. Um, you know, I'm going to do the mailers. Like, there's, there's no way around any of that. But I think that personal, like, taking the time to come drop something off or to come reach out to you is really impactful. And then um, the meet and greets have been a little less fun. They've been more on Zoom, but I have had some people who are willing to, if it's, if everyone's healthy and we're like outside in a park, they have been willing to do some meet and greets. So um, mm -hmm. at least because I'm out in a more spread out area, 
it feels safe to still do some of the like tried and true practices. If we were in a more dense area, I don't know if it would feel quite as safe to be doing um to be doing like the door knocking, but we've felt okay about it. Last question for you. How can you know people that, that like what you're talking about? Um, how can they help you? What help do you need? I mean, we always need people who are willing to make phone calls. I'm really, really great on the door. I get so sidetracked with my phone in my hand, like unless I'm sitting with somebody who's like, no, you'll make that phone call. No, you'll make that phone call. Do not go over there. You don't need to go over there. Um, so phone calls, like phone banks is always super helpful. Um, you know, being willing to host a Zoom meet and greet. The more people see my face, the more people have heard one or two of my ideas, the stronger I am as candidate. Um, donations are always huge. Campaigns, unfortunately, are not free. Um, so if anybody has five or $10 they can throw my way, it's gratefully accepted. And then one of the big ones is just reach out. I mean, if you wanna share a bunch of posts on social media, that's organic reach and that's valuable. I mean, nothing, there's really nothing that you can want to do that we cannot figure out how to use and everything makes a difference. Okay. Um, Megan, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Uh, give people your website. Uh, it's votemiller54.com. Okay, votemiller54.com. Um, check us out at o2utah.org. We can also help you get connected with Megan if you're interested in helping. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for coming on, talking with us today and for being willing to run and to you know be out there working for a better state and to improve issues like air quality. We really appreciate it. And we're, we're happy to endorse you and happy to be helping you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You guys are doing incredible work as well. And you know, I look forward to working with you at the legislature. Okay, sounds right, have good. Have a good one. All right, thanks. We'll see you. Bye.